Thank you again for joining us here on the Vital with Spark podcast. On today's episode, we're excited to highlight our recent Spark report, the Arizona First Responder System and Mental Health Integration, which dives into some of the ways first responders across Arizona are integrating mental health services into their everyday practices. Our guests are Matt Eckhoff of Komen OT Consulting. Matt led this research for Vitalist and as well as the outreach. So previously worked for Rio Rico as the director of community paramedicine. And he also oversaw some of the work that the state trauma center did while he was with AZDHS. Jesus Rivera, who is not only a Vitalist Health Foundation trustee, he's also the deputy fire chief with the city of Surprise and then Detective Sabrina Taylor, the City of Phoenix Police Department. She is with the Continuous Improvement Unit. Thank you all for joining us here today. The first thing we like to do on the podcast is always have people introduce themselves, tell us who they are, what they do, and anything else you'd like to add. So without further ado, why don't we go with Matt first, and then we'll go with Sabrina and then Jesus. Well, hi, everybody. It's Matt Eckhoff. I'm here as a co-author of this report, but really my job was to dive into those who are in the trenches, those who are on the front lines doing this work of not only EMS. This round we looked at fire and EMS, but also law enforcement and dispatch and how they each interact with our mental health system throughout Arizona. And I have to say, looking at this topic specifically over the last 10 years, I think we're really at what a lot of our key informants referred to as a, a watershed moment in this integration effort. And and today, Chief Rivera and Detective Taylor are here to really highlight some of those recent efforts that have worked really hard to integrate these services and at the end of the day, support community members, support people in crisis, connect people to resources, and the next step that doesn't necessarily involve 911 or an emergency room or a jail cell. So excited to be here to help hold together this voice from a variety of agencies throughout Arizona. Sabrina, the floor is yours. So I'm Detective Sabrina Taylor. I work for the Phoenix Police Department. I am the CIT training coordinator for the department. I'm also a board member with CIT International, which is an organization that supports CIT programs largely within the United States, but there are some programs outside of the U.S. Hi, this is Rivera, Deputy Chief with Surprise Fire Medical. Been working with the Mobile Integrated Health Programs here in Surprise since about 2015, started with working with patients that are in crisis and getting them to the most appropriate facility at the time of the 911 call, rather than taking them to the hospital. I've been working with other organizations here in the Valley, working on the treatment refer program, the ET3 program, emergency triage treatment and transport, and working with different insurance groups, providers, and public safety, and just trying to work with everybody that we can to ensure that we're providing the best, most appropriate resources for people in the time of need. So thank you for having me. Thank you all for those introductions. Sabrina, we're going to go with you first. We saw throughout the outreach to first responder agencies that in an effort to let's really gain momentum, and it's going to cross first responder agencies from law enforcement to fire to EMS to emergency dispatch, connecting individuals who are facing crises to the right resources has become a significant focus in many organizations. You as a leader within the crisis response realm, 
your day job is with the Phoenix Police Department, but also as a board member with CIT International, like you mentioned. Can you dive into what promising practices you're seeing related to first responder and crisis integration? Yeah, I think we're seeing like two key things. One of them, I think, is an increasing recognition that this is a team effort. I think the support from the current administration in the White House is super helpful in laying out some good funding for healthcare infrastructure because we're all finding or at least admitting that at the local government level, there's very little that either police agencies or like the whole city governments themselves can do about healthcare infrastructure. <laughs> Largely that's privatized or exists maybe at the state or federal level. So without like these robust partnerships, there's little that cities can do on their own. So having good funding, having some federal initiatives, having some grassroots initiatives, that's been really great. And then the other trend we're seeing is things are starting to move upstream, which is really nice. I think 988 sparked some good conversation about what kind of crisis infrastructure outside of police departments we might be missing and we might be needing to support like this national three-digit number. And then if we build up our crisis infrastructure and our healthcare infrastructure, then we could stop relying on solely on the criminal justice infrastructure to respond to crisis. So two really cool things that we're starting to see. How do you see diversion programs, diversion supporting individuals, right? So that they're getting the best care that they need. Yeah. So we, we have a tendency to say like police are not social workers and they're not because social work is a very, I mean, you, you go to, to a lot of schooling for that. <laughs> But on the other hand, they are sort of an ambassador for government programs. They're familiar with, you know, they work for the government. They're familiar with the services that the government can provide. And so to a limited aspect, they are the frontline response that can sort of screen people who might need additional services and then maybe make a quick referral to a true social worker or, or a true provider that can do a much better assessment and help a person navigate through the system. So I see for individuals, maybe this kid, this system can increase their access to services. So they don't need to know who in our, our fractured system of support they can reach out to, they can call 911. And at every step, of the way through the criminal justice system, there are mechanisms in place to try to get them connected to someone who can navigate them to the most appropriate service. What's it currently look like when somebody calls 911, whether you're in the city of Phoenix, whether you're in Surprise, wherever you may be? What is the current process when somebody calls 911? We respond. We usually have information and route that gives us an update to tell us Whatever the, the caller has called the dispatcher tells them, hey, I have a history of this or that, or, or if, if we're lucky enough to have that information, sometimes we don't. So when we arrive, we do our assessment, you know, introduce ourselves, say hi, and ask what's going on. And if we quickly start to figure out that this person's having a crisis, that they may be wanting to hurt themselves or someone else, then immediately we have to identify where we're going to get them help because we're required to get them help as soon as we have that information. So we'll ask a series of questions, do our assessment and, and verify 
that that is the situation. And so for traditionally, the only option we had for many years was to take them to an emergency room by ambulance. And that was it. And people usually don't want to go there, especially if they've already been there and they've had a crisis and they know that they're not going to get the help they need right away. And they usually don't want to go. And, and it's tough for us because we're required to get them help. So until we started partnering with mental health facilities, that, that was really it. So now we can introduce to them the option of, of transporting them directly to a facility, a mental health facility that's going to provide them with immediate access to care. Somebody's going to be talking to them within minutes of arriving through the door and and, and that's going to be the most appropriate place. They won't have to go to the hospital. And if they've been in the system and they realize and, and recognize what some of the options are, they, they know that this is a great option. And this isn't an option that everybody has available, but it's something that we started here and we, we believe in. And so once we talk to them, our responders assess their vital signs and ensure that they have no medical need to go to a hospital and they have no injuries or ingestion of some sort, then um, it is a good option for them. So they have to be willing to go. So, hey, we can take you to the hospital by ambulance where you'll have to wait for care, or we can take you to a facility where they will, again, be able to talk to you right away and get you the help you need. Does that, does that sound like a good option? And, and we tell them by name. Sometimes we partner with different places. So they'll have a few options of places as well, depending on what they have going on. And sometimes they like the facility and they like that option. So we transport them directly there and get them the help they need. And usually we don't see that, that customer, that patient again for a while. In the past, it was different because we would take people to the hospital and they would go to an emergency room and sit in a room in a bed. And then we would transport other patients there to the hospital. And that same person would still be there. They'd be there at night. And then the next morning, we're transporting people to the hospital. And they're still there. And we're about to get off shift. And they're still waiting for help. So I'm really glad that we're able to make this change. But that's kind of what the process looks like here in Surprise. When somebody calls 911, it's answered by a public safety answering point, and those are extremely localized. So, I mean, I can talk about what that looks like in Phoenix, but it, it looks different depending on what town or state that you're in. So Phoenix, 911 is answered by Phoenix police. And so whether you're calling for fire or a different service, it'll initially be answered in the police call center. And then those dispatchers are going to try to triage what the need is. And so for years, they've been doing that. And 70% of the people that call in usually get referred to some other service other than police. And that could include, like historically has included, like crisis services or 211 or some other information. But in the past few years, we've been beefing up our ability to identify mental health crisis and then trying to beef up the resources that we can offer somebody. So if somebody calls 911 and they're in mental health crisis, our dispatchers can do a limited triage to assess their acuity level. And if it seems like they only need to talk to somebody, they can transfer them right over to the crisis line for much more thorough assessment, knowing that if during that very intensive assessment, some 
safety is a concern, then the crisis line can either dispatch a mobile team or send back to police for either police or fire dispatch, which is actually super rare. That happens less than 1% of the time that the crisis line takes a call either from the community or from us, then requires requests police to, to go out as well. And then the city of Phoenix has also stood up a community assistance program so that we can try to address the need that the gap in need between what the county mobile teams can offer and sending a full-blown police car. So we have the ability in those kind of gray areas where it wouldn't qualify for like a community mobile team. We can send the fire department team, which has a social worker and usually a, a peer on it, somebody with lived experience who's pretty adept at outreaching people who might be service resistant or may have lost trust in the, the system. So somebody that can relate to them on a one-on-one -on -one level and try to help give a lot of alternatives so that we're better positioned to help somebody in crisis with something other than a police response. Let me get this straight, Sabrina. Every time that you guys send out a fire truck, there is a peer on there? We have fire, we have EMS, and we have behavioral health all couched in the fire department. So you might get a fire truck, you might get an ambulance, or you might get one of these community assistance program responders. And so it's those little vans. So it's not a fire truck, but the little vans have a pier on them. You've been an active voice for expanding tools for fire and EMS for a while. Like you said, since 2015 or so. Understanding that traditional emergency response and transport doesn't always fit into uh, an individual's needs. That's been core to your work at Surprise Fire. Why is advancing these options so important? Why have you personally been such an advocate for this? Why? What caused this for you? What drove this? And what have you seen as improvements? Just knowing that people were going to the hospital not getting the care they need wasn't really good enough. Our crews were getting frustrated because we would run multiple 911 calls on the same person that was calling because they wanted help. They needed care and they weren't receiving it at the hospital. And so they'd want to go to a different hospital, thinking maybe they would get a results there. We'd take them to a different hospital, and they still would not get the care they need. Sometimes our crews would see them three or four times in a day. And so they would get really frustrated, not really sure what they could do. The CIT program hadn't advanced really out to the West Valley yet, so that really wasn't an option. And the only thing we had that our medical directors would allow us to do is to take them to the hospital. So le just learning more when there was a change in, in care, I think Medicare was looking at people being readmitted to the hospital. Hospitals were starting to be overcrowded with people that continue to get sick, weren't getting any better and going back to the hospital. And then there was limited room, limited access. And there was a presenter there was Marcus Johnson, who presented the Waiting for Care data and in details and talked about how a person who was suffering from a mental health crisis would be waiting in an emergency room for 24, 36 hours, sometimes more. If it was an adolescent, they'd be there even longer. I know here in our local hospital, we had an adolescent that was in the emergency room in 2015 for 23 days, and that's just unacceptable. So that's not the kind of care that we wanna provide. So as soon as our medical directors 
and our medical services division was able to sit and talk and figure out what criteria do we need in order to take a patient from a 911 scene to a mental health facility? What would be acceptable? What would our doctors allow? And what would their doctors uh, be willing to accept from us out in the field without having to go through an emergency room first? And so some of these facilities do have a higher level of care. They do have physician's assistants, nurse practitioners. They can do a, a screening and assessment there as well. So we agreed upon uh, vital sign criteria, put together a list of exclusionary criteria to ensure that they didn't have injuries, some type of illness that required medical care at emergency room, some type of poison or toxic ingestion that was going to cause an overdose. And as soon as we got some of that stuff kind of filtered out, and then we were able to get the patient to agree to consent voluntarily to go to these facilities, then we could take them there. So as soon as we did that, we wanted to kind of learn more, like, is this going to be the right process? Is this going to work? Are these folks going to end up back in the hospital anyway? So then we met up with, at the time, it was Arizona Healthy Connection and then Health Current and now Contexture. So we started working with the Health Information Exchange to start looking into hospitalizations, emergency contacts, to see if the patients that we came in contact with and transferred to the facility were leaving there and going to an emergency room for the same thing. And so that was a good way for us to kind of keep our finger on the pulse and, and figure out whether that was going on. And we, we found out that it wasn't, that they were getting care. They were not going to an emergency room. And if they did, there was a few maybe within a month went to an emergency room because they got in a car accident and needed their arm or leg checked out or had something else going on, but it definitely was not for the same reason. So we believe in the system. Our medical directors felt better about the program. And then our firefighters, paramedics in the field, when we would review and talk about training to, to review these programs, the crews would tell us that these services are working because the process we had in the past was in the past. They're not seeing these people anymore. They're not seeing them the same day, the next day, the next week, or the next month. So something had changed, something was different, and the crew started to believe in it. That just became the process. Thank you, Azus. That was a, a great overview of how it's changed. Now, something else is a little, I wouldn't say new, but it's been around for a little over a year, 988. So how has that changed things in terms of crisis response? and? And for our listeners who may not know, 988 is that crisis lifeline for people who would normally call 911. Now they can call 988, talk to somebody who will help them with their crisis. Either Sabrina or, or Jesus, how has 988 changed the game for you guys? It was interesting in Arizona because we've had a robust crisis system. And we've had, at least for the top half of the state, the middle and top half of the state, one crisis line number. And shortly before 988 happened, access switched to a single crisis line for the whole state. And so we already had at least a regular 10-digit number to get to a crisis line. And that could come with mobile teams or crisis facilities the whole cadre of what SAMHSA recommends as a robust crisis system infrastructure. So when 988 rolled out, it's great to have a three-digit number for it. 
but it didn't change a whole lot in Arizona. What it changed was like the rest of the country because not everybody had all the services in place that we had to such an effect that the FCC actually postponed their advertising campaign because even within the three-year ramp up to 988 going live, states just couldn't build the infrastructure needed to support this new three-digit call center. And so they needed more time. So they delayed the rollout of the advertising for it, which is why some of the listeners may not have heard of it, because they needed time to build up that added infrastructure. Most states had some kind of crisis line answering service, be it not 24 or 7 or or whatever. And the original Suicide Prevention Lifeline had a way of if the primary call center didn't answer diverting to another one that's close by, but they didn't have the ability in most cases to dispatch a mobile team. So if you got a fairly high acuity call, there was nothing else you could do except divert to the local 911 system. So the goal was to try to push out some technical assistance, some infrastructure funding through SAMHSA and try to build up a mobile response maybe psychiatric receiving center, some kind of system so that if somebody called the 988 crisis line with some acuity that required additional services, that those additional services were actually there. Zeus, anything else you'd like to add? Yeah, we're thankful and we're really happy that there's a 988 phone number, a three-digit number that is specific for behavioral health needs. When we do go on the 911 calls, it's not everybody's in crisis. Not everybody wants to harm themselves or someone else. Sometimes they have other things going on where they can definitely benefit from services. So there's different phone numbers that were out there that we can give out for specific things. And we have a list that we keep with us that we can give out. Hey, if you're a teen, if you're a veteran, if you just want to talk to somebody, there was different phone numbers. So now we can just give them the one phone number and, and say, hey, this is a resource for you. This is a referral. It's simple. It's easy to memorize. And then you can call it from any phone without having to write it down or look it up. So we're really, it's like 911. It's just easy to remember. It's something that we can provide to people that they can easily access. So that's really my thoughts on it. Beyond that, again, I think it's just, it's great that that we have that and they continue hopefully to invest in it and expand on that. So there's more services And I know that the location of where you're at by area code is important. So as they continue to build that infrastructure, it will just provide better services for people. All right, back to you, Sabrina. First responder agencies across Arizona have been evolving their services to meet the needs of individuals who are facing crises. This new report highlights that around 60% of the first responder agencies that participated in our survey have some type of training related to supporting individuals in crisis. So crisis intervention team and crisis support training were the most common training cited by first responders in Arizona. How do you support crisis education within the city of Phoenix? I'm primarily responsible just for the police department, although other city agencies do different kinds of training. So the police department was able to sign on to the International Association of Chiefs of Police's One Mind campaign. And the One Mind campaign is a pledge to train every officer in mental health first aid, which is an eight-hour training put on by the National Council for Behavioral Health or overseen by. We have local trainers that put it on. 
And then we additionally make available 40 hours of certified CIT training for officers who self-select, who want to engage in that kind of work. And then in the academy, we have at least 40 hours of just basic mental health awareness, de-escalation, cultural competency, all kinds of CIT-like things that your first year officers should sort of have under the belt. So all of our officers have an awareness of mental health and how to identify it. And then we have a select specialized group of officers who really want to engage in this kind of work that have this sort of advanced training about how to be a good team member. So it's, it's not that we teach them more about behavioral health or more services because they have all all the awareness and all the services that already exist, but we introduce them to major heads of stakeholder partnerships and tell them about how the system is supposed to work, tell them how to report back if they see things that aren't missing and how to be an effective member of the team so that they can help people in crisis better navigate the system. Jesus, what about the city of surprise? Yeah, so we also, mental health first aid, we, we brought that in, although it is an eight-hour class. It sometimes makes it challenging for us to get everybody through it without having approval for overtime. So not everybody went through that. But what we were able to do is have some of our partner facilities come in and conduct training for us, like identifying mental health, identifying a substance abuse situation, how to interact, how to engage, and how to talk about the facility as an option for them rather than going to an emergency room. So that that really helped when talking about some of the reasons that we have these options. I think most of the firefighters, paramedics that work for us are familiar with the frustration of, of seeing the same person and taking them to different facilities, knowing that there had to be a better option. We know what it was like not to have those options. So once it became available as another option in the 911 system on the menu of, of options that we had in the past, we had buy-in. So some of the training we have is really about the process and navigation. This is somebody who's 10 years old. Where do you go? So we do keep a worksheet on our electronic patient care record that we have. There's a worksheet that we can refer to for vital signs, exclusions, and we can also look at phone numbers for the different facilities that we partner with so we can call and, and see if they have room. Some of the newer facilities, adolescent facilities, have no wrong door policy, which makes it even better for us so we can take them there. But we're still limited. There's sometimes that the 911 call that we're used to would usually take 10 to 15 minutes, maybe a little more, sometimes taking 30, 35 minutes because they're having to make phone calls and arrange for transport and find a caregiver or an adult to be arriving at the facility at the same time as the patient if they're under 18. So it just takes a little bit more time, but once the crew starts to recognize and realize that, it just becomes part of the normal process of what we do. I think that the crews have found satisfaction in providing better care for people, making sure that they get to the right facility, and then doing surveys through email and, and over the phone. We had one of our volunteers call as well to just get some feedback and see how things were. And uh, we've gotten really good, great feedback as far as 
satisfaction and, and service. And people were thankful that they didn't have to go to an emergency room and thankful that they had other options and that we actually offered that to them and want to know why other fire departments aren't doing the same thing. That's kind of where we're at. We are working to work with other fire departments, training, and, and make sure that this is an option for everybody. We just have a few hoops to, to jump through, but we're hoping to get there. Matt, what did you hear when you were talking to first responder agencies across the state? Did you hear anything about training and what their thoughts were on this? Yeah, I sure did. I think the variety and diversity of agencies that responded. I mean, we reached out to law enforcement, fire and EMS, dispatchers. I think staying on this topic around education, we saw that there was between 30 and 40% of agencies that we surveyed didn't have any above and beyond you know, training beyond an initial certification or an initial basic training or an academy that really delved into mental health services, crisis, the nomenclature, the terminology around mental health, who the providers are within a community or what providers don't exist in a community. So that between 30 and 40% of folks, first of all, saying, hey, we don't have extra training in, in mental health first aid or crisis intervention tra team training or crisis support team training. So there was a real, a large desire to bring some of these trainings to individual agencies, especially out of urban centers. And I think that's something that we're alluding here to. This training is not ubiquitous. It's not consistent across agencies. Mental health first aid, it's, it's an agency's choice to pick and choose what training they, they may institute at their, within their agency. So that's definitely something that came to mind. And so part of this publication, part of the goal was to equip agencies outside of the Phoenix Police Department or the Surprise Fire Medical Department to have roads, to have ideas, to have resources to track down and learn from. I think we're seeing a lot of communities implementing mental health crisis services above and beyond business as usual. So we're looking back at the you know, last 10, 20 plus years of, of service to community. And so this report, and in response to a lot of our survey respondents, highlights a variety of resources for folks to you know, learn about these trainings. How do I get this training? What paths do I go down to find this training? And that was just one aspect. I think the other piece, Sergio, that really rang a bell and really highlighted an important need was the fact that we had, I think it was maybe one respondent out of the 100 plus respondents to our survey about what do you want going forward? Is there any opportunity or any desire for continuing education or a continued conversation around this piece? And the vast majority of folks said, absolutely. We would love to have this topic more integrated into conferences or webinars. And so I think that's part of our direct response here and beginning this conversation. And I'm sure you're going to highlight, Sergio, some of those next steps. Yes. Thank you. Glad we could highlight that portion of it as well. If there's anyone out there listening who might be involved in this space and not yet taking any of these trainings or you're looking for insight into what other agencies have done, we have contact information, we have resources within that Spark report. So chock full of information in there. But like you said, there's still work to be done. There's still a lot of training to continue. Moving on to one more thing. So when we're talking about crisis in general, we can't forget all of these social determinants of health, as we call them here at Vitalist and across the community health world, not only in the U.S., but across the world. 
They're just the social factors that impact our everyday lives, right? That impact our health. So this could be things like race relations or insurance coverage or housing stability, which was a huge issue in Arizona or socioeconomic status and people who are underemployed or simply just are having trouble making ends meet. So we can't take all of these things and not know what their impact is into people's daily lives. When we consider those factors, both of you, Jesus and Sabrina, how do you take those things into consideration when delivering services locally? So we did have a grant-funded community paramedicine program. Here's a surprise. We actually had two of them. One, the first one was from Biolis Health and the second one from United Healthcare. They provided us with opportunities to visit with some of our customers, patients, when they weren't having a 911 call. So the 911 crews would go out and if they found that somebody needed help beyond what they could provide on a 911 call, they didn't have to transport the patient anywhere, patient maybe didn't require care at the time, treatment, maybe they did, but not emergency treatment. And there were things going on that, that just, again, they couldn't take care of on a 911 call, like maybe home health services or primary care services, medications, things like that, that everything was in order, patient would have better health. At the time, they would, they would make the referral to the community paramedicine program through our electronic patient care record. And so the report would come through. Our community paramedics are the, same, are, are the crews that are working uh, off-duty, a few trained paramedics we have. They call and, and schedule an appointment with the customers and ask, hey, can we visit? families there, we happen to meet with them. And so they would go and identify what resources that they may have available that they're unaware of, or what resources they need that they could benefit from. Again, home health care, maybe it's meals, or maybe it's just cleaning up around the house. Get the customers in touch with those services so that you know, they would have what they need. Maybe they hadn't been to a doctor in a while, maybe they hadn't been to a dentist or have had eye exam in a, in a while. And so those are the types of services they would help them get in touch with, uh, make appointments, families there, figure out transportation needs and ensure that they have a way to get to the appointments and, and things like that. And then a lot of times we work with Area Agency on Aging, Maricopa County, Adult Protective Services even, which is a, a route for us to help get people in touch with services. Sometimes people think that it's a bad thing. Adult protective services are going to take people out of their home, but many times they've been a huge advocate for the patient. So we had that opportunity to do that, and we, we found a, a lot of improvement. We found a, a reduction in 911 calls for some of the people that were relying on 911 for all of their needs. And then it would help the crews because the crews weren't having to respond there as often, and they, they knew that these uh, customers were getting the care they need. So that's something where we try to keep that program going. We just ran out of our grant funding and we're working with the city to try to build this into our budget. But this is something that, that is, is we want it to be ongoing. We want it to be a, an important service. We have fire prevention. You know, we try to prevent fires in buildings and schools and make sure things are safe. We want to make sure the community is safe too. We want to make sure that they have what they need at all times. So, Again, that's just another uh, avenue that, that we have that we've identified on the 911 calls where we can 
help people out and identify those social determinants of health. I, I think this is a hugely important question, especially for the population we're talking about, right? Because people who have a mental illness, they just have such intersectionality across multiple layers of injustice, multiple layers of inequity. And it makes it really challenging to sort of address those inequities because they're so overlapping. The simplest ones to target would be income inequalities. And yet most strategies to address poverty and income inequalities are going to miss our population because of the multiple layers of ways that they become marginalized. So how we address it a little by little, they're baked into systems. Fortunately, there's a couple of key components of CIT that help it, at least from a grassroots perspective, attempt to undo some of the structural issues, attempt to make some structural corrections. And, and the biggest one of, is co-production. CIT in its truest form is a gathering of stakeholders that centers the voices of people most affected by these policies and attempts to co-produce together an alternative program. And so from a bottom-up approach, you're chipping away at these systemic inequities, but then you're making real and lasting changes. So from a police perspective, of course, the easiest one for us to target is just the over-criminalization of mental illness, right? So what we can do is divert, and that's what we do. Like We heavily try to divert in every instance where somebody might get caught up in the criminal justice system from the 911 call to the police contacts to after arrest and all the way through their journey through the criminal justice system. We've done sequential model intercept mapping and looked at ways that we can divert people out of that path and back into healthcare services. And then we advocate, we constantly look at the system, look at ways in which injustices are still happening and try to address them. We all worked with a lobbyist recently to make a tiny little change in Title 36 that used to say a police officer must be the person who serves a involuntary order for treatment. And now it can also include a DHS approved transporter. So it's just one way that we we're able to kind of carve out where police don't have to be that major contact. And so you try to find ways that inequities are happening and chip away at a solution that will try to address all those conflicting factors that seem to trap our population. There's actually a man named in the report who we referred to as Jay. He was involved in a car crash. And it could have taken a different route, but rather than it becoming a law enforcement interaction, he was routed to resources that could help him work on his substance use disorder, right? So I think that's a great highlight of what you guys are doing. And it leads me to my next question, which is partnerships. You both mentioned organizations you work with to route people in crisis. For both of you, we'll start with you, Sabrina. Who are the key community partners you're working with on these crisis calls? So I think one of our biggest partners is Mercy Care, because as a managed care organization, they then control like the contracts for all the crisis providers. So our main partners are in that crisis provider landscape. And then, of course, the people who might use those services and their caregivers. 
So when we talk about who we most partner with, Mercy Care, then followed, of course, by the crisis line, and then mobile team providing services, and then urgent psychiatric centers that have promised to be a 24-7 easy access, no wrong door. We turn no one away. We'll partner with anyone, but it makes the most sense for us to partner with organizations that work how we work 24-7, 365, any day, any time, any person, regardless of insurance. What about you, Jesus? Very similar. Because of the treatment for the ET3 programs, we partnered with Access, with Medicaid, Medicare fee-for-service. Those are some of the partners we have that provide us an opportunity to sustain the programs that we have. We've been fortunate enough to work with them to have the incentive there that didn't used to exist, where the only incentive was ambulance to a hospital. Now there's a different option through them. So we're hoping to partner with some of the others that, that are out there as well. But locally here, I'm surprised we have Destiny Springs. We work with Mine 24-7, Copper Springs, Recovery Innovations, Community Bridges. They've all been great resources for us, again, based on availability, based on needs and specialties. Identifying where someone should go in that time of need is important. And, and we're thankful that these facilities have all provided us with training as far as letting us know what it is they do, what kind of services they can provide so that we can have a list that our crews can look at and provide with care at the time of need. And again, regardless of whether they have insurance or not, because anytime the public safety for the fire department, we don't offer services based on what coverages people have. If we have an option for somebody, then that's available for everybody. And that's the great thing that we've had support from our city leadership and fire department leadership here to where they just want to do what's best for the customer. And that's what we're going to stand by. This one's again for both of you. It's kind of our last question. Is there anything you would change related to first responder mental health education moving ahead? Jesus? I mean, one thing I would change is maybe more funding for training so that everybody could have at least minimum same standardized training. The stuff that we do, we can attend for a couple hours, you know, two hours at a time. And, that, and that's really it. Rotate crews through. But if we could have more funding to where we could have eight hour or 40 hour training, that would be the best. It would help give us a foundation of um, really good solid training that we can build off of and then provide refresher beyond that. But what we have is good. It works, but that's what I would add to, to make things better. Just with everything else that we do, it's a piece of the pie that we would like to fill with, put more filling in that piece of the pie, maybe some whipped cream on top, but we'll take what we have. And if I can continue to work on making changes for the future, I will. Sabrina? Um, so the city of Phoenix is pretty blessed. Training is easy for us to do. We do it continuously. And there have been a number of organizations that have put out national training programs that we can just pick up and adopt. Like So we're able to continuously train. Right now, PERF, the Police Executive Research Forum, has a training called ICAT. It's a de-escalation training that we're just running everybody through. It takes us about a year and a half to get the whole department through. So 
it seems like every two years we're able to roll out some kind of industry standard training for our officers. But I know we're unique. And I think like some of the other experts here have said, as soon as you start to go out into less urban center, more rural, like this becomes challenging. I know Coconino County has often told me that just getting someone to 40 hours of training is a feat. I guess we need to look at ways that we can support agencies who aren't as lucky, who have trouble getting the staffing or the scheduling or the resources to do this. I know the Arizona Post created a four-hour video to try to fill that gap a couple of years ago. So it's definitely something that we're keeping an eye on, but I haven't I haven't seen a good solution yet. What have we not touched on? So I know that right now the Department of Health Services is working on an alternate destination program and really emphasizing its use and, and process for uh, first responders throughout the state, primarily for emergency uh, medical services, so that when we come across these situations, again, the, the main incentive for many EMS services is transport to a hospital because some of the services are funded through insurance providers. And so most of the insurance providers will support a transport in an ambulance to a hospital. And that definitely meets the medical necessity requirement when somebody is in crisis. However, a transport to an alternate destination, which would be mental health facility, during that crisis is the best care for that person when we come in contact with them, if they have no need to go to a hospital. But not all payers are, are providing that incentive to uh, EMS providers in every situation. There's times where it's denied or whatever the reason is. So I think that's part of the hesitancy that comes with the program. So we're going to continue to meet and work with the Department of Health Services to try to get more payers on board to hear the stories, to hear about the process, to learn about the successes, and hopefully make that the standard of care, just like transport to a hospital is the standard of care and has been since the 1970s. Thank you for joining us on the Vitalist Spark podcast. You guys are fountains of information and resources and we can keep this conversation going. Actually, we kind of have. Thank you for doing the interview and this, and I know we'll be poking you for future conversations if you're so interested and available. Appreciate it, Matt. Thank you for all the work on the report, Sergio. Thank you again for the time. One of the things I was just thinking about was we had put together, when the Treat and Refer program first came out, we put together a workbook, kind of educational workbook, when 14 hours of training was required for fire departments to join that program. I don't know if it's something we can work on for the future is the alternate destination training program. Maybe you know, down the road we can work on that and, and offer that to everybody in the, in the state to further promote the, the work. I'm sure we get more discussions about that soon. Thank you.